Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Bria Barthel, thankful that Sina can fill in for Blaze Bryant, who is under the weather today. Happy Pi Day on March 14th, 3.14. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Nick Wurst of the Railroad Workers Union about recent derailments, as well as ongoing labor issues. Then Marilyn Raleigh, a resident of Rensselaer, shares her concerns about the Dunn landfill with Steve Pierce. Later on, Kaylin McPherson explores music and music-related organizations with Todd Mack, founder and director of Music in Common, and Trey Carlisle, the programming coordinator for the Black Legacy Project. After that, Cena talks with guest Shanice Fleming, founder of the Queen's Cut Flowers. Finally, we hear about the upcoming storm from retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson. But first, here are some headlines. The Libertarian Party of New York and the Green Party of New York have filed a petition for an appeal in their ballot access lawsuit to the Supreme Court of the United States. The petition challenges the increase of New York State's ballot access threshold instituted in 2020 as part of then-Governor Cuomo's emergency COVID budget. The lower federal courts have sided with the state. Climate and environmental justice groups are strongly condemning the decision by President Biden announced Monday to approve the Willow Oil Drilling Project to be constructed on Alaska's North Slope. Over 2.3 million comments were already submitted to the White House, urging Biden to deny the project. Opponents say the decision directly contradicts the administration's promise to protect wilderness areas in Alaska from resource extraction and Biden's own stated climate goals. Another snowstorm is coming our way. Monday night's transition from rain to snow will be followed by heavy, wet snow all day Tuesday. In the immediate capital region, we could see 8 to 14 inches or more. Higher elevations could get around 2 feet. And retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson will join us for the last story of today's show to talk about this storm. Advocates are urging urging Governor Kathy Hochul to include fair pay for home care in this year's budget. The legislation would give home care workers a wage that is 1.5 times the state's regional minimum, minimum wage. Last year, Governor Hochul included a $3 increase to workers. In this year's proposed budget, wage parity cuts are on the table, freezing home care worker wages. The board of directors of New York of the New York State Troopers Police Benevolent Association voted to fire its longtime political director, Gordon Warnock. Over the past month, the organization has been going through a leadership shakeup. The BPA's finances and business dealings are currently being investigated by the state police, the FBI, and the U.S. Attorney General's Office. Smoking cigarettes currently is not allowed in Schenectady Parks. Parks and now Schenectady leaders are proposing regulations that would also ban smoking and vaping marijuana in any city park. They are seeking public comments on the proposal. And that's it for the headlines. 
For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 518-272-2390. For our first story, Mark Dunley brings us a look at the recent trail derailment in Ohio and the ongoing labor issues for railroad workers. We're joined by uh, Nick Worse, who is a member of the uh, Railroad Workers United. We lost we last talked to Nick back in uh, December, uh, right after uh, President Biden had gotten the uh, strike by the uh, railroad workers, to, you know, declared illegal to prevent that from occurring. We talked to uh, Nick about some of the labor and some of the safety type issues. And of course, recently with the derailment back on February 3rd of the uh, train in um, East Palestine, Ohio, and the resulting decision to burn off the uh, five uh, railroad uh, cars that contain vinyl chloride, very toxic, uh, made to use uh, plastics, and the resulting concerns about where is all that smoke going and the um, the health issues related uh, to it. We thought we'd invite Nick back on just both to talk about what the, you know, Railroad Workers Union and particularly are, are doing both about the continual push to make the railroad safe, more safer and then any of the labor negotiations. So, so, so Nick, what, what has railroad workers... Um, United been doing in response to this uh, East Palestine situation? We sent immediately, uh, we sent out information as quickly as we were getting it about um, what had happened with East Palestine. Um, the uh, the news, um, the, the photos were obviously really bad the instant any railroader saw them. And so it was uh, um, a big job for us to, to try and get as much information out through actually a lot of the media um, contacts that we had made during the coverage of our contract fight. So we were able to, to get a lot of information out there. And I think RWU actually played a really big role in, in um, getting eyes on East Palestine as, as quickly as possible and sort of answering the questions about the media, about uh, from the media and the public about how something this awful uh, you know, this huge could happen. Um, so we've sent some members out there, um, to see things, uh, for ourselves. We've, um, uh, covered it in, um, in our material and we're, we're raising again, the, some of the things that we've been campaigning on, uh, for years, including, um, limiting, uh, train lengths and, uh, train weights, um, uh, making safety upgrades, especially to trains and, and cars that are carrying um, hazardous materials and, and, uh, and sort of exposing the role that, that these big railroads and, and the federal government um, has played in sort of um, keeping effective regulation um, and industry changes from, from taking place to prevent something like this. And uh, well, isn't one of the issues, the uh, reduction in the number of of workers that the railroad company will assign to these freight trains? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, I think there's there's the concerns about, you know, the reduction of, of train crews. Um, but I think also it's, it's worth sort of making clear that uh, a lot of derailments are caused by 
mechanical issues in um, cars and in engines and in um, uh, and in the actual physical track itself and things like that. And those are all things that are maintained and inspected by other crafts. And these crafts have also faced massive um, job cuts in in uh, recent decades. So I think, you know, it looks like it was an, an axle that failed, uh, a bearing that failed and then caused the whole axle to fail that caused the, the derailment in East Palestine. That could have been caught by a, uh, a car inspector if there were enough car inspectors and if they were given enough time to inspect things, you know, who knows, maybe it developed in transit. Um, we're not exactly sure, but that train was also sitting, you know, uh, that that train had to be recrewed three, I think it was three different times before, you know, it, it actually derailed. It didn't make it to its destination, but, you know, it could have anything to do with, you know, the fact that those, that bearing heated up and then cooled down and heated up and cooled down multiple times before, uh, you know, before it met its end, so to speak. So, yeah, certainly, um, not just crew sizes, but overall um, staffing of of all crafts on the railroads is a, is a big concern. So, uh, you know, I was a community organizer around the Midwest in the late 70s, um, particularly with ACORN working in Iowa. And train derailments was a big problem in a lot of our particularly low-income neighborhoods. Um, and it was very clear that they were not investing properly and, and, and track maintenance. And I know Barry Commoner back in uh, 1980, when he ran for president citizens party, made the point that at a minimum, we should at least nationalize um, the railroad tracks, if not the entire railroad uh, operation. And, you know, I understand the railroad workers United have been raising the issue. Yes, it's time for public ownership of, of the railroads. Is that going anywhere at this point? Yeah, um, it's actually been, um, we launched it uh, sort of after the contract fight, um, you know, after after the federal government intervened in, in our contract battle, um, but actually before the, the East Palestine derailment, and we were raising it on, on a number of different fronts um, from, uh, you know, how it, how public ownership could help us fight for um, improvements on a number of different issues, uh, but safety w was one of those. And um, so, yeah, it's picked up a lot um, since the East Palestine derailment, um, sort of the naked greed of Norfolk Southern and other um, railroad companies has been very much on display. And so this campaign to take, take the railroads into public ownership and actually, you know, more than public ownership, you know, people's control and 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 put them at the service of moving goods and people as safely and quickly and efficiently as possible it's getting a lot of um you know uh, a lot of uh um it's resonating a lot with a lot of people and one of the things we're doing right now is we're reaching out to all these different organizations and individuals who have who have expressed their support for us um, during the contract battle and things like that, and asking them to uh, endorse and, and make statements in support of our campaign um, for public ownership. So, um, so that's taking off. You know, it, it seems like it's it's every every other day a new organization or a new um, you know news source has has coverage of our of our campaign. So we only have about two and a half minutes left. So I'm going to ask you a two part uh, question. One is, you know, is, is Congress, state, 
federal regulators likely to do anything, or is it another case where in a couple of months it, it fades from the public consciousness and you know the industry gets to 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 go? And then just for the second, any progress in some of the issues you were trying to raise back in December uh, with respect to the union contract, or, or is that progressing in, in any sense of the imagination? Well, uh, maybe dealing with the second one first there a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, the contract we got was, was uh, you know, didn't do anything to address the main issues. There's been a few things um, since then. Uh, a few different companies have made agreements with certain unions covering certain crafts to give limited amount of, of sick days um, and things like that. But it's certainly not, you know, there's, there the kinds of changes that that rank file railroaders have been looking for haven't haven't come but there's there's signs of hope shortly after the contract battle the president of one of the big one of the larger railroad unions was actually ousted by a uh, by a rank and file campaigner um, named Eddie Hall who won the president's uh the president position in um uh brotherhood of locomotive engineers and trainmen in um uh district 19 machinists um we actually just got news yesterday that the challenger slate um of of rank and file machinists uh, uh locomotive machinists and mechanics has has successfully um you know qualified or uh i forget the the technical term but they're they're um they're now uh able to run in, uh, and to challenge um the leadership in in their the elections there so uh, I think the the rank and file is getting organized, and people are looking towards uh, towards how can we fight within our unions to to fight for the things we really need. Dashing really going to happen, or is in a phase yes. news headlines? Yeah, there's been a talk about a rail safety act. Um, there's holes that we can run freight trains through, and it doesn't actually um, establish any any kind of meaningful uh, regulation. It just passes the buck to to say oh you know this individual or this committee will establish you know regulations on this that and the other thing um in reality it's a lot of talk and not a lot of action um that we're seeing right now so we're still fighting um for real real regulation thank you very much uh nick worst uh, railroad workers united out of the uh, boston area and this has been uh, mark dunley for the hudson mohawk magazine Thanks to Mark for that report. We, of course, will continue to follow developments in these stories in future episodes. Frequent listeners know that we've been reporting on opposition to the Dunn Landfill in Rensselaer. Steve Pierce brings us insights from one of the nearby residents. I'm speaking with Marilyn Raleigh. She's a resident of Rensselaer, taking part in the Air Justice Lab project. Marilyn, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you live? Uh, my house is located on the road that leads to the Rensselaer uh, Elementary and Senior High School. Um, I'm sort of semi-retired. I'm in the insurance business. I've been in it for over 50 years. <laughs> and, um, you know, I have, three, I have five grandchildren, actually two step-grandchildren and five grandchildren. I've lived in this house probably 32, 33 years. Love this area, and uh, well, my life is pretty simple. <laughs> I like it to stay that way too, if I could. <laughs> so, what are the concerns that you have? 
Well, the concerns I have are the odors that uh, that promulgate from the the dun dump. I have a pool, and I used to enjoy going out there, you know, in the nice weather and sitting by the pool and enjoying the sunshine and and I have everything I want right here. This is my little my little uh, piece of the rock, I guess you'd say. And since the dump has come in, I ended up with asthma, bloody noses. Uh, I now have COPD. Uh, I, I smoked, I grant you, I smoked. I can't say it came from the dump, but they can't say that it didn't. Um, people I've known in the area for years have come down with cancer. I certainly can't tell their stories without their permission. I've lost a friend recently within the last month from cancer. She lived on Washington Avenue, not far from where I live. Um, the odors, I worry about the kids. I don't have any kids in the school. I'm a senior citizen. But I worry about what's going to happen to the children and why more parents in the city of Rensselaer aren't taking up this drive to get rid of and close the dump. Their children are there, not mine. I've lived my life. I just don't want to see anything happen. I mean, our youth is our future. Without our future, we don't have much going. And these children are important. Even though they're sassy and they're fresh, <laughs> talk to a couple of them, but I still wouldn't want to see anything happen to them. So how did you get involved in the organizing around the dump? Well, the smells alone uh, were, were pretty hazardous. When I started in with the nosebleeds, um, they said it was from dry air in my house. Uh, so I got a humidifier and did my part with going to the doctors, the specialists and whatever, and they gave me things to do. And so far they've been subsided. But if I don't keep the humidifier on and I don't use the medicine, I'm going to get a nosebleed. And, and I'm on baby aspirin, so when I get a nosebleed, I bleed pretty heavy because my, my blood is thinned. So, again, I, I'm looking out for a city. I've lived in this city the majority of my 75 years of life. I grew up here on uh, Willow Street, down in the, the hollow of the city of Rensselaer, and I, I just love the city. That's why I've stayed here come here because I, my kids went to school here, not in this particular school and when it was on the river. And um, everybody knew everybody. And if you didn't know everybody, you're related to everybody. I mean, it was that kind of city. They've taken that away from us. Um, I spoke at the Dunn meeting, I think it was in June, and I was the only one they didn't cut off. And my speech was the longest. I think they forgot to set the timer, really. Because as I started out saying is, we the people, we, the people in the city of Rensselaer, have a right to live with the pursuit of happiness. We, ne we need the freedom to be able to breathe in the air. Things that people take for granted, we can't take for granted because of the dump. The dump is a hazard. Eventually, I I'm hoping I'm wrong, but if I'm right, there'll be more kids sick. And there's several kids that are sick with asthma, as documented. So... We're speaking with Marilyn Raleigh. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Marilyn, you've been here for, you said, more than 30 years. What was it like when you moved here? Well, it was, it, people would come visit me and they'd say, you're sort of like in the country. My mother, uh, my mother lived a mile. She lived in the center of the city of Rensselaer, so I was close to my mom. Yet I had 
I had all sorts of wild things. Deer. I, I even saw boar once. Um, the birds were beautiful. The greenery was beautiful. It was a beautiful neighborhood. It was a beautiful neighborhood. And then, of course, the school came in, and um, which we didn't really need. That's that's another 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 time, another story. But again, when that happened, I don't know where all the animals went. You know, you didn't. You saw occasional deer once in a while. Oh, and what, what I saw were toms. You know, the uh, turkeys. Uh, it, it, they'd come down and they would be walking on the side and they would jump over the fence, the tom more so than the females. It was weird because the females used to stand down at the corner and wait for the male to come back. He must have been checking out the, because he'd jump over the deck that I had and into my yard. I had to be careful not to let the dog out. <laughs> and then he'd jump back and, and look like the girls were waiting for him and they'd take off for a little walk together. <laughs> I prayed they didn't go to Washington Avenue because I figured they'd get hit. But again, I care about this city. And that's, that's, that's the only thing I can say is I care about this city. I care about the people that are in it. I've lived my life, but they haven't. When you moved here, Exit 7 was here, uh, but there was no school, there was no dump. Uh, what, was, what was here? I don't know what was up there. I there's never. A, there's a mine of some kind? Oh, there was a, Dunn had some sort of a, uh, some sort of a sand something or other where they were mining dirt, I guess. And that was the reason they said that when they put the school in, they couldn't have trucks go up that way because the land could cave in. But they apparently didn't have any problem putting the trucks in (laughs) to come up Petition Street after that point when the dump was there. Because apparently, I don't know why they didn't use this area too, except they would have had to pass the school. What's the difference? They're less than 200 feet away from the school, getting closer all the time. Do you get the sense that everybody in the region, in, the, in this neighborhood, is opposed to uh, the dump, or are there people who support it? Oh, there's people that support it. I'm sure there, there's pros and cons in, in everything, but the majority of us old-timers that, that have lived here for a while, we don't want it here. We don't want it in our backyard. Who would? You know, and it brings the property values down. You know, I mean, I, 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 for one, and I know some of the other neighbors have, I mean, the guy across the street, he's putting in remodeling and everything into his house. I mean, if you have a house, you got to have upkeep, and you got to, you know, and you want to keep it up. But again, these things bring it down. So if I wanted to sell, I would have to disclose that the dump is, you know, not far away, less than a quarter of a mile away from my house. And what amazes me is Don Stewart. When all this stuff happened and I went to the meetings and I learned more and more about what was going on and what we could be breathing in, I went. I stopped down at Don Stewart's to talk to um, whoever was in charge down there. I talked to a secretary and I explained to her, you know, I'm just a citizen, just voicing my knowledge to them. I said, I know that the, the children that go to Don Stewart the, the parents are probably spending a lot of money to send. Do they realize that their kids are less than a mile away from a toxic dump? I think not, or they don't care. And I can't imagine no parent would not care. But where's Don Stewart in this? Where, where's anything that could really matter and go before the governor to say this is a bad move? We not only have a school less than a mile away, we have one less than, what, 200 feet, 250? whatever the distance is, I don't know. And and probably nothing will help. 
because it's got to come from the politicians, and I don't understand why they would care so little for the people that vote them in. You've been very generous with your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add, something I forgot to ask you? No, just that I love this city. I'd like to see it prosper. I don't want to see it be known as the dump of New York State and that we really, really need somebody to back us, somebody to care about the people in this city and the children in this city that are so close. These big conglomerates that have a lot of money, they don't, you know, we're nothing. <laughs> if it doesn't look green, it's just not, you know, not the proper color. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> you talk about whites and blacks, but that has nothing to do with the color green because that seems to supersede everything. <laughs> so. And what do you think uh, people could do to help out? Get involved. That was Rensselaer resident Marilyn Raleigh talking with her own Steve Pierce while the Capital Region Air Justice Lab was installing an air quality monitor outside her house. For more information about the Air Justice Lab, visit mediasanctuary.org AJL. For background details about the Dunn Landfill, you can hear many earlier segments at our website. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Bria Barthel. Uh, and on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network includes WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, sharing is caring, spreading the word really supports what we do. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now let's switch to a lighter topic for a bit with a look at the importance of music and the work of two local organizations. This, this is Kaylin McPherson reporting for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Today, I have Todd Mack and Trey Carlisle, co-founders of the Black Legacy Project. So can you uh, just give me a little background of you guys and about the Black Legacy Project? Uh, sure. Um, I am. Uh, this is Todd Mack. I am the founder and executive director of Music in Common, which is the nonprofit that produces the Black Legacy Project. And I have the honor of co-directing the project with my man, <laughs> Trey Carlisle, um, and I'm the program coordinator for Music in Common and co-director of the Black Legacy Project. And the Black Legacy Project is a musical celebration of Black history to advance racial solidarity, equity, and belonging. And it's a national project, but it takes place at the local level in communities across the country. And so what we do in a nutshell is we will travel to a community, we will select a theme and two songs centered around race relations. Um, that have direct ties to the local communities. And we will start this week long process where we will have community members discuss these songs, explore how they're still relevant to the state of race relations today. And then we engage local black and white musicians and reimagining these songs, creating present day interpretations of them and co-writing an original song together about how we can move forward and advance greater belonging in the community and in the nation. 
And then songs are recorded and performed and showcased for the community. And we highlight the whole experience in a docu-series where people around the world can learn about the Black history in each of these communities we travel to and be inspired to advance belonging in their own communities. Wow, that's very interesting. So it's kind of like you get the whole crowd working together to produce something to help to you take old songs and you rewrite them and you try to promote racial uh equality and so it's really cool on how that works um then, what influences the music you play in the black legacy project specifically yeah yeah um so for the black legacy project um the songs that we select um they all are really centered around, you know, they have a powerful message around um, race relations, racial injustice, but also, you know, equality and freedom and belonging. Um, so all of, we take songs from the past and present that all speak to um, the need for advancing greater belonging, healing and equity across racial divides. Um, and also we select, um, the songs that have direct ties to the local communities that we go to and the theme we focus on. So, you know, when we traveled to um, the Berkshires, the theme was, you know, hope in a hateful world. So we chose songs like Lift Every Voice and Sing, Strange Fruit, um, We Shall Overcome, songs that all have direct ties to the local community, but also speak to this general theme of how can we build a world where hate no longer exists. So is it, is it, one big band or how many um people are uh producing the music and and working together to produce beautiful music yeah well it kind of varies with each community that the that the project travels to but it always starts with four musical co-directors and um and then typically it could be anywhere from an additional four or five to a dozen or two additional musicians helping on the recording sessions and on the performances of the songs so they're musicians all local all, all local. local from yeah so i was about to ask yeah. they're all from the local area well that's exactly. cool yeah so, so, so then you even get local artists to come and sing and exactly and that that's sort of the whole the whole uh the whole point of the project is to really localize it on every level so certainly starting with musicians but also even the the community partners are generally local nonprofit organizations, colleges, high schools, uh, different various community stakeholders that are embedded in the community. And the point of it is to embed the project in the community. And being that uh, we don't live in each of the communities that we go to, uh, it's really important to sort of uh, create those partnerships, both with musicians and non-musicians so that the project can continue to grow after after we're not there so with the project what do you hope people get out of what what you intend to do with the project mm -hmm. yeah yeah so we hope the project um can inspire future conversations and future collaborations among community members musicians and non-musicians alike around what can they do to help advance greater belonging, greater equity, greater solidarity in their local community and across the nation. And we seek for the Black LP to be a platform to inspire those type of conversations and 
collaborations that are necessary. Um, and we feel that music being a universal language um, is a powerful tool to be able to help bring people across divides to have these important conversations and to build empathy towards each other and start working together. Definitely music is a universal language. It brings people from all backgrounds, no matter what. I, I agree with you there. I think that everything that uh, Treasure shared, though, has to start with, um, I mean, I, I see that as sort of step two. Step one is that um, really the, the hope and the objective of the project is to deepen understanding around the complexity of, of a lot of these uh, issues and the complexity of black and white race relations in the United States and the historical complexities of that as well. And from that, I think constructive conversations can ensue, but you really, it's got to start with just elevating the awareness and deepening the understanding. Right. Definitely. It, that's definitely true. You need to elevate people's awareness, you know, get the word out there. You know, that's the first yeah. step. So for people who've never heard your music, what type of music do you play? Is it blues? Is it jazz? Is it rock? Is it metal? Is it? pop hip-hop yes. all of that <laughs> <laughs> so in in every when we travel to every community and we engage the local um musical co-directors in reimagining these songs and co-writing an original they all bring their unique um musical genres musical styles musical strengths to how they reimagine these songs um so as a result we have had you know blues songs jazz renditions, folk songs, or rock songs, gospel, funk um, stylings, um, all around, you know, all as reinterpretations, like modern day interpretations of some historic songs that a lot of people may know about, like Lift Every Voice and Sing, like We Shall Overcome, like Strange Fruit, or songs that not as many people might know about, like The Ballad of the Walking Postman, or What is the Color of the Soul of a Man? All of these have been powerful songs written throughout history about how can we build bridges across racial divides and advance a world of equity. So it's been beautiful to see the artists bring there a lot of these um, diverse musical genres and how they reimagine these songs and in co-writing original anthems for change. With those um, original anthems, is it just the artist writing them or do they get the crowd involved or... You know, how does that work? Yeah, it's just the musical co-directors that that write the songs. So but it is four musicians writing one song together. So that's always an interesting process. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. Yeah. Oh, it, it probably is interested in what they come up with, too, as well. Sure. Yeah. So it's a beautiful collaborative process that they engage in. Um, so how do you get artists involved with the project? You know, how do you reach out and find these artists? Yeah. So depending on where we are uh, working, if it's a place that we've been to before or have some inroads with local musicians, we might start there. Um, and if it's a place that we've never been to before, either way, uh, we do a, a, a considerable amount of just research into the local music scene. Uh, using social media, using various music sites uh, to try to identify uh, who the various musicians are in the scene. And then we just literally reach out to them one-on-one -on -one as we 
um, sort of identify who we think would be great for the project. With one minute to go, is there anything else you'd like to say that I didn't ask? And also, where can more people find information? Yes. So you can learn more about us by going to um, our website, theblacklegacyproject.org, uh, as well as musicincommon.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us on both platforms at The Black Legacy Project and Music in Common. And I will add that our first album will be out in uh, late April. So be on the lookout for that. This has been Kayla McPherson reporting for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. I've been talking with Todd Mack and Trey Carlisle, co-founders of the Black Legacy Project. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Ken. That was the abbreviated version of this interview by Kayla McPherson. And for more information, that website, again, is uh, musicincommon.org or theblacklegacyproject.org. And now, Shanice Fleming is a farmer with roots in the food industry. Beginning as a landless farmer, she created bouquets out of what was available to her, which led to creative use of less conventional plants. Shanice spoke with Hudson Mohawk Magazine and tonight's and this episode's co-host, Sina Bazila Hickey, about her journey, barriers to Black, Indigenous, and people of color farmers, and what's different this year. Shanice Fleming, also known as Queen's Cut Flowers, last year had a CSA of flowers. And the way to describe it is all of these well-known flowers mixed with the lesser utilized flowers, like, or not flowers, like mint and um, milkweed and Getting one of these bouquets was like an all-sensory experience. I'm joined by Shanice Fleming. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. Is that somewhat of a description of how you see your bouquets? Yes. So for me, what was unique about discovering your work is that you utilize all of the different beautiful plants and... I just don't see that enough. And you just have this creativity that I think is really lovely. How did you discover your love for farming and flowers? Well, initially when I had started farming, my intention was to go into it uh, wanting to grow food because uh, I was a chef for most of my life and um, I was burnt out. And I had decided that I was going to be able to provide food in a more direct way to people who wouldn't necessarily pay $70 for a plate of radishes, you know? So I had farmed seasonally for like the past like four or five years. Um, and then like my first farming job, I had worked at this place in New Lebanon Springs called Laughing Earth and they grew flowers. And um, in my first week working there, I had worked with Ellen, who is one of the farmers there. It's Mike and Ellen. They're like a really beautiful couple. Um, and I had started to help Ellen with harvesting flowers. And I just had this moment where I was like, I love this and this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I really felt a calling when I was like in the field and just like surfing through 
six foot tall sunflowers and cutting. What inspired you to use the more unconventional plants in your bouquet? Well, to be really honest, that wasn't a part of my plan in my head. But as like a landless farmer, I used what was available to me um, in Second Street Farm. So I had starts that I had started in the house, like seedling starts. And Dara grew vegetables and, 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 and also herbs in Second Street Farm. And I would also just like cut things in like public spaces um, so like if like the bok choy went to flower or like, you know, the uh, rhubarb uh, had like it makes like the, this weird flower on it or just cutting mint and just working with like shapes and sizes and figuring that out with uh, more traditional things that people are more familiar with. You mentioned being a landless farmer. What are some of the obstacles that you've come across and how have you navigated that? I think The biggest obstacle that I've come across is just really figuring out how to acquire land as somebody who doesn't come from wealth or as somebody who, like, doesn't have a 3,000 credit score, right? Like, it's really hard to obtain all of these things when you just haven't been placed in that. I mean, you speak to a lot of farmers and a lot of them either come from wealth or you know, they're married and like they have good credit and then they, you know, they they take out a a loan and um, those just weren't options for me. But currently I work something out with a friend of mine in Spiegeltown and I have like almost a fourth of an acre to grow on. So um, that's that's where I'm growing at now. And in the long term, I would love to have, you know, a three a three acre operation of cut flowers and be able to like facilitate space for black and brown folks and everyone in between. Um, But for right now, this is like where I'm at with things, you know? So, yeah. So these systems, these barriers, there are lots of people who face these obstacles and it sounds like your way through it was connections. Is that the only way to navigate these pretty unjust systems that we have? I don't think that that's the only way, but that's the way that has worked for me. A lot of the things that I have gone through, it feels like it's it's hard. Um, but a lot of it is, it feels like chance. But like when I really think about it and I really sit there and I I look at the situation, it's from me just like knowing people or having friends that are willing to help and are in place in their life where they can help, you know. Um, I've reached out to so many entities and, like, people, and I've kept hitting walls where it was like, well, you know, you could take out a loan, but it's like, well, the bank won't give me a loan. And, like, it's it's this whole, like, round circle where, you know, um, honestly, like, at this point, I'm looking to, like, re-enroll into school to, like you know, be able to have a job that like will pay me enough money so I can build my credit, so I can take all of these extra steps. And unfortunately, like that's just how things have been working out for me. And yeah. 
So now you have a little bit of land yeah. and you are planning on doing the CSA again this year. What else do you foresee for this year as we're heading closer to growing season? Well, this year I will definitely have a larger variety of flowers just because I have more space. Also, like bulbs have entered the chat. Like I have bulbs now. So I'm just really excited to have all of the things that I had wanted to have that first year of me being in business. I hope that the flowering bok choy and the mint will continue to be a part of the bouquets. Yeah, there's a lot of like forested um, land there. So I'm just going to cut whatever looks good. That's always like what I do. If I like see something and I know it could hold up in water, I'll cut it like no matter what it is or if it's considered a weed or, you know. The bouquets, we've described it, but to see the bouquet is something spectacular. How can listeners see your work? Um, they could see my work by going on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is queens with a Z, X, cut, X, flowers. And we will put that in the description <laughs> to this segment. <laughs> yeah. So what would you like to see different so that um, you've talked about the difficulties of being a, a BIPOC farmer? What, would, what should change in our systems? I mean, I guess capitalism as a whole, I don't know. Um, I think it's really just like land access. You know, if you really sit there and you really look into it and you see like who is actually getting these grants, who are getting these loans, like oftentimes I feel like when I reach out to entities that are supposed to be like supporting um, biopoc people, they're overwhelmed, right? They're flooded because you know, where where else are we turning to? So the changes I would like to see is just more land availability. Shanice Fleming from Queen's Cut Flowers. It's been wonderful to have you on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I wonder if to end your your love for, for flowers and, and gardening and food is so apparent. I wonder if we could just close our eyes and think about like, what is it for you? What is that connection? Can you describe being in the, in a garden, in a farm? And what is that connection, that feeling that you have in that space? On a good day, it's like a feeling of safety and security and having the sun on me and being really proud of my work and feeling like I'm doing the right thing and like feeling like the earth is receiving me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> Shanice Fleming's work has been featured in the Times Union plus on Spectrum News and Channel 10 News. Uh, those clips can be found on our Instagram. The handle the uh, is linked into the description of this segment at mediasanctuary.org. And now we're joined once again by retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Welcome back, Hugh. Good evening. Uh, I hope you're all ready for an exciting day tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, exciting is one word for it. What's coming at us? 
well, it looks like snow, and it's not going to be your, your ordinary run-of-the-mill nor'easter. This is the one that when we, people say, where's the real big storm and all that? Well, this is this is it. This is probably going to be our big storm of the winter. Uh, we are. I'm looking right now in a satellite picture. It's, it's uh, Monday evening, so we're playing this again Tuesday. You'll know the fate of the storm. But storm is brewing uh, off the uh, well off the Mid-Atlantic coast, and it's hooking to the east-northeast now because the atmosphere is very blocked because we talked about this many, many times, the polar vortex collapsed in the air. The atmosphere has become very blocky compared to what it was in the wintertime. This storm cannot go offshore. It's going to get recaptured by a developing upper-level system over the Great Lakes, and you can all see this playing out now on the satellite very nicely. So it's all coming into play. So after midnight, the bewitching hour, that's when the snow is really going to start flying. Before then, it's going to be rain. It's going to be a mix of rain and snow, and then it's going to turn to all snow. And I think the brunt of the storm, are you ready for this? It's going to be between midnight tonight and 8 a.m. tomorrow. That's when the lion's share in the valley, right here in the Capital District, the lion's share of our snow will accumulate. So did I hear you correctly that some of that polar vortex and stuff might have it stall over us and give us even more more snow than's predicted? No, 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 no. What, what I was trying to explain, I probably shouldn't even mention it, but the, the polar vortex about a month ago had it went to a, a collapse. And what it did is it basically buckled the jet and, and put all kinds of wrinkles in the jet. So we have a blocky atmosphere right now instead of a smooth, fast-flowing one that we had most of the winter. So we didn't get that many storms. Now we're getting, and that's one of the reasons why we're getting this storm now. It's it's basically all this energy being forced to, instead of going out to sea, it's going to come up and curl back from the ocean in towards New England or between Cape Cod and the Gulf of Maine. So before the show, we were talking a little bit about what kind of snow is coming in. Did you say it, this is the more wet, dense, heavy kind, right? Or a- Absolutely, because... We're looking at temperatures that will not be that cold. It's not, ironically, this kind of setup a lot of times would bring in Arctic air. It's not really bringing in that cold of air, but we're going to generate cold air by the whole storm. The storm's going to really explode in the, in the atmosphere, and that's going to pull cold air into the system. So we're going to see what's called dynamic cooling going on tonight. So we're going to see a cool down from top to bottom. And temperatures will slowly drop to freezing, and, and this is going to turn into a wet, heavy snow. It's not going to be your fluffy snow, at least initially. Now, later on in the storm tomorrow, it might actually turn fluffier, even though the temperatures will rise a little bit because the air aloft will be even colder. But this is what the concern is, is heavy, wet snow could cause, will probably cause power lines to come down, tree limbs to come down on power lines. There's going to be at least scattered power outages. How this is all going to play out still remains to be seen. Hopefully it's not a widespread deal like in 2008. It could be, though. It's, it's, out, it's not out of the question. We could see widespread power outages. Hopefully not. So back in 2017 on Pi Day, March 14th, we had a pretty bad storm. How is this going Big to compare one, to yeah. that one? Well, I said last week it wouldn't compare. Now I'd say it's going to be pretty close. Uh, at my house, though, I got 23.2 inches from the Pi Day storm. The airport was actually a low and low outlier. It was like 17 inches, but most places got more than that. Even around the capital district, Dwaynesburg got over 30 inches of snow. 
the difference is that was a much drier snow. There were very little power outages. It was a little bit of drifting, especially in the higher terrain. This storm, again, the wetter snow, bringing down more power lines. And there is going to be wind, but the wind's not going to come till later in the storm, until later tomorrow and tomorrow night when the storm begins to finally slowly pull away. And it's going to be really deep and powerful by that time. There's a lot of pressure gradient between us and the high pressure well to our west. So we're going to pick up some pretty good winds tomorrow night, you know, gusting to 35. That might add a little bit more to the power outage at that point. So what are we talking about snowfall amounts? I'm thinking in the immediate capital district, anywhere from 10 to maybe 20 inches. And the reason for the big range is because it depends on where the, the brunt of the moisture ends up. It, it might end up just east of here. In this case, we'll get close to the 10 inches but it ends up right on top of us. Look out. We're going to get bands of snow producing two, three inches an hour overnight into early tomorrow. And we could end up closer to 20 inches and we're going to wake up tomorrow. It's going to be snowing to beat the band. If it isn't, then well, all bets are off, but it looks like it's really going to be coming down right around dawn tomorrow. That's the, the peak of the storm. I'm trying to distract myself with thinking about terminology. And in our emails before the show, you said that um, the reason it's hard to predict is that the wild card will be where the mother snow band sets up. What does that mean? That's correct. Well, okay. What we're, what's happening, I'm looking at this on the radar, on the satellite and radar, and we're seeing a tropical connection. We're, we're, we're taking a hose. You know, we talked about the hoses in California bringing tropical air into California. Well, now we're taking air from the Caribbean and the Southern Atlantic, and we're pushing it back like a bent word backwards towards New England. And that hose is coming right towards us. That's going to be where the, the real, that's the mother load of where the, the mesoscale banding will occur. And even without it, we're going to see snowfall rates of one to two inches an hour uh, later tonight through to early tomorrow morning. And where that band exactly where that sets up, is really going to be who gets the heaviest amount of snow. And then you add the terrain on top of that. Catskills and Berkshires, they're going to get even with the terrain's going to enhance that lift even more, and they're going to even get more accumulation. But I think we're going to be right on the edge of, the, of that hose, and that's going to be the key. If, we, if that hose just misses us to the east, which is possible, we'll get close to the 10 inches. But if it comes right over us and wraps around, and so tomorrow morning we're going to get close to the 20 inches. But either way, the snow is going to continue tomorrow, but the intensity will drop off. And temperatures will start rising a little bit in the afternoon. So we may actually see roads improve in the, in the valley. The hills, forget it. They're going to stay bad all day. And they might actually have a little bit of blowing and drifting snow developing. But in the valley, it looks like the worst will be tomorrow morning. Absolutely. The longevity of snow on the ground has many varying factors. Do you know, can you predict how long the snow is going to stick with us? Or is it just going to be a surprise little snowstorm and then 50 degrees and here come the tulips? Not quite like that, but um, we are going to see, you know, we are going to see temperatures above freezing after the storm. So and into the 40s as we go later in the week, maybe even touching 50 with some rain. So I do expect a pretty rapid melt-off. It's not going to all go away because there's going to be a lot of moisture, one to two inches of liquid in this, so it's going to take a little bit of effort. But what we're going to see the snow banks come down. It's not going to stick around like it would in January and February, no. So I think it, it could be gone in a, in a couple of weeks, but you know it's going to be around through weeks. the rest of the week. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, oh, okay. by the end of March, you'll be gone. Yeah, no, it's not going to be eh, gone. Not as quick as I was hoping. No, not quite that quick. Not with this amount, so especially if we get in the higher end, it's closer to 20. If we get 10, yeah, maybe in the early next week, but if it's 20, it'll probably be a little longer than that. <laughs> I grew up in Buffalo where when it snowed, it started in November and it, and it just stayed white. Until February or March or sometimes April. Yeah, it was cold. So this it was, yeah, going back and yeah. forth, jumping back and forth between heavy snow and fifty and heavy snow and fifty seems weird. No, welcome to March. This is what actually, believe it or not, we're still running slightly above normal this March as far as temperatures. We haven't had a really cold night, and we haven't had you know we've had temperatures you know close to normal or a little, even a little bit above during the daylight hours. So. Um, but this is typical of, le- especially later March and April, we get this kind of, you can have a big snow and then have a, a big melt off and then have another snow. It's different from the winter when it, the sun angles lower, it's colder, the snow doesn't melt. Basically, it just piles up like, like you're talking about. And we've had winters like that in the past where it just doesn't melt. This will be different because it is later in the season. The blizzard of 88, which happened on the same time period, which is also the one that happened 30 years ago in the same, you know, this 12th to 14th time period. That was the only saving grace in the blizzard of 88. It was able to melt. They were able to melt the snow in two weeks, or it would have been, you know, there was, they couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> 46 inches. Okay, well. We're not, we're not going to get that. We're not going to get 46 inches. <laughs> let's hope not. Yes, we have about 30 seconds left. Anything else we should know about the weather coming up? Just be, play it safe tomorrow. Just be you know it, it could be wires down. It could be dangerous to travel. Be next to impossible in the morning, getting better in the afternoon. So I would just uh, stay indoors if you can. And, and, so, and, and, and when you shovel, take your time. It's going to be heavy, wet. It's going to be hard to move. So just take your time. Mm, lift with the legs, not with exactly. your back. Bingo. Thank you so much, Hugh Johnson. It's, it's always a yeah. pleasure to have you on our program. Oh, Bria? Good talking stay with you, Hugh. Yep, stay safe, guys, seriously. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki, co-host and engineer. And I'm Bria Barthel. We want to thank all the other volunteers who made this episode possible. All the contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Kaylin McPherson, and Steve Pierce, with headlines by Blaze Bryant. Hope you feel better soon, Blaze. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to the donate button at mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile. Stay stay safe in the snow and happy Pie Day.
Hi, it's Nico, the youngest producer. You've been listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, featuring news and views from around the New York Capital Region. Listen at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. on Sanctuary Radio, 105.3 FM, Troy, and online at mediasanctuary.org. You can also visit mediasanctuary.org anytime to hear the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on demand or to sign up for our podcast.